if you'd like to turn to uh, Luke chapter 21, which is on page 1056, 1056 in the Chapel Bibles, and uh, we're picking up where we left off a couple of weeks ago. And uh, over the next two weeks, we're going we're gonna to finish off uh, chapter one, because it's, it's kind of all of a piece, but it's... Um, too much to do in one go, so we split it in half. Uh, but um, as you see, it's Jesus' response to the disciples asking him about when a significant event is, is going to happen, and there are all sorts of things involved in it. So, so this morning we're going to look at verses 5 to 19, and then next Sunday we'll do 20, 20 to the end. Uh, so Luke chapter 21, beginning at verse 5. Some of his disciples were remarking about how the temple was adorned with beautiful stones and with gifts dedicated to God. But Jesus said, as for what you see here, the time will come when not one stone will be left on another. Every one of them will be thrown down. Teacher, they asked, when will these things happen and what will be the sign that they are about to take place? He replied, watch out that you are not deceived. For many will come in my name, claiming, I am he, and the time is near. Do not follow them. When you hear of wars and revolutions, do not be frightened. These things must happen first, but the end will not come right away. Then he said to them, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There'll be great earthquakes, famines and pestilences in various places and fearful events and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will lay hands on you and persecute you. They will deliver you to synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors, and all on account of my name. This will result in your being witnesses to them. But make up your mind not to worry beforehand how you will defend yourselves, for I will give you words and wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. You will be betrayed even by parents brothers, relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death. All people will hate you because of me, but not a hair of your head will perish. By standing firm, you will gain life. Father, thank you for your words to us this morning. Would you give us your wisdom and insight into the things that we've heard? And would it be your voice that we hear, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So, um, first of all, just to, just to say that for, for Luke, uh, the temple is a real focus of, of Luke's gospel. Uh, part of Luke's purpose in writing his gospel is to show us how Jesus becomes the place of God's presence. Uh, the temple for hundreds of years has been the place of God's presence in the life of Israel. It's the place of worship. Uh, but now that uh, presence is being transferred to Jesus and then through Jesus and the coming of the Holy Spirit is coming through uh, through the church. So so anything about the temple in Luke's gospel, it's always very significant. Luke is the only gospel that records Jesus going to the temple at the age of 11 and uh, saying when his parents found him and would spent three days searching for him. He says to them, didn't you realise that I would be in my father's house uh, in the, the, the three temptations of Jesus in the wilderness? In Matthew's version of those three temptations, he puts them in the order of uh, 
Jesus being tempted to turn stones into bread uh, and then being uh, taken to the top of the temple and uh, Satan tempts him to throw himself down because God will send an angel to, uh, to catch him. And then the third temptation in Matthew's gospel is Jesus uh, is taken to uh, the highest mountain and Satan shows him all the kingdoms of the earth and says, I'll give you all of these if you will worship me. And that's the order in Matthew's gospel. When Luke writes his account, he reverses the last two. So the temptations in Luke's gospel end with Jesus being taken to the top of the temple and being tempted to throw himself off. So there's this progression from uh, turn stones into bread, uh, being offered the kingdoms of the world. But for Luke, it finishes on the temple because that's, that's the focus for Luke's gospel. That's the story that he's trying to tell is Jesus is becoming the new temple. So that's the first thing just to kind of have in mind as we, as we look at these verses that temple is so important for Luke's gospel. As we read through the rest of this chapter, there are four threads that run through. If you imagine a tapestry uh, stitched together with four different colours, and sometimes uh, at different points, a different colour uh, becomes prominent, and you notice a particular colour more than the others. But all four threads are being woven through the tapestry all the time. But at different points, a different thread becomes more prominent. And uh, through this chapter, there are four threads that run through. And uh, I'm going to try and remember, remember what they are. <laughs> so, so the first thread is the day of the Lord. For the, for the Jews, there was this expectation that there were two ages. There was uh, the present age and then the age to come. And the changeover between the present age and the age to come was going to be very dramatic, very decisive and, uh, and just... Uh, unmistakable. So a lot of the Old Testament prophets write about the day of the Lord. Because the people to, you know, the people before Jesus knew that their world was in a mess and they needed a superhero. They needed someone to come and sort it out. And their expectation was that God was going to send a superhero. He was going to send the Messiah. And on the day that that Messiah came, everything would change. The present age would end. The Gentile nations would be utterly defeated. And the age to come would begin with the Messiah sitting on his throne in Jerusalem and a new kingdom being inaugurated. So that's the first thread that runs through this passage is this expectation about a day, a day of the Lord. Something dramatic and decisive is going to happen as God steps in. The second thread, uh, which seems kind of contradictory to the first thread, is that, uh, is that Jerusalem is going to come to an end. Uh, Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. There is a time coming when uh, uh, the temple will be torn down, which for the people at the time would have seemed utterly unthinkable. Would have been as, like me saying, you know, a day is going to come when, uh, you know, Canterbury Cathedral and the Houses of Parliament and Buckingham Palace are going to be destroyed and not one stone would be left on another. If I was to publish that as a, as a prophecy and to say that day is coming when all of those buildings will be demolished and not one stone will stand on another, everyone would think I was uh, more madder than I already am. But you just wouldn't believe it. So for Jesus to, to say, you know, temple's going to be taught. But that's one of the themes that runs through this. The third theme is that Jesus is going to return. Jesus is going to leave his people and then the day is going to come when Jesus is going to return. He's going to come back. The fourth thread is that the people of God are going to be persecuted. And we need to be prepared for that. And those four threads, as I say, it's like a tapestry. They kind of weave through this chapter. And you'll notice as we go through 
that sometimes one, one comes to the fore and sometimes it's another one that comes to the fore. But as we kind of try to pull it apart, that's kind of the framework that we're working with. So the disciples are remarking at how wonderful the temple was and truly it was a wonder of the world. Uh, there were column pillars in the temple that were uh, made from white marble that were 40 feet high and each one was made from a single block of stone. Uh, the front of the temple was, uh, it was basically plated with gold. And when the sun rose, the sun reflected from the face of the temple. And to look at the front of the temple was as if you were, you couldn't do it. It was as if you were looking at the sun itself. It was so blinding when the sun shone on it. It was, it was a marvel of the ancient world. It was a beautiful building that had stood for hundreds of years. And the, the disciples, as they're approaching Jerusalem, you know, just saying, you know, this, this, is ama- this is an amazing thing. They're remarking about the temple adorned with beautiful stones and gifts dedicated to God. And kind of in their thinking is it's unthinkable that this temple should ever go. This is the place where God resides. And yet Jesus says, as for what you see here, the time will come when not one stone will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. And it happened in AD 70, just 30, 40 years later. The Romans have had enough of these Jewish insurrectionists, these rabble rousers, and the Roman army was sent in and literally flattened Jerusalem. Nothing was left. It was said by the time the Romans had finished, you could draw a plough across Jerusalem and the plough wouldn't get stuck on anything. It was so utterly demolished. As the time will come, and so they say, teacher, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign that they are about to take place? So a number of things that Jesus tells us, and some of them are kind of immediate for the disciples that he's speaking to, their preparation for AD 70 when the temple is destroyed. But some of them are to equip us to live in the age in which we live before the return of Christ. Because we're 2,000 years on and we're still waiting and longing for the return of Jesus. So some of what Jesus says has immediate application but also long-term application. Things for us to take note of. Uh, So just watch out for the threads as, as they arise in the tapestry as we go through. First of all, he says, watch out that you are not deceived. Many will come in my name claiming, I am he, I am the Messiah. The time is near. He says, do not follow them. Do not follow them. Don't be deceived. Lots of people have come over the years claiming to be the saviour of the world, claiming to be the one in whom we should put our trust. People have come over the years saying, the end of the world is going to come on this particular date. You need to get yourselves ready. And then that date comes and goes and they come up with some excuse for, oh, well, we kind of got the date wrong. But now there's another date. So, you know, trust us for that one. Jesus says, don't be deceived. How, how are we not deceived? How do we, you know, how, how do we live in such a way that we're not deceived when these people come along? Well, the first thing is, are these people, do they have lives that conform to the scripture? Are they living lives that conform to the truth of what Jesus has told us? Jesus said that he didn't even know when he was coming back. He said only the father knows. So if Jesus didn't know, how can any other human being possibly claim to know? Do do they live lives? Don't be deceived. Don't follow them. Don't follow them always. This is why it's so important that we're part of a church family. It's so important that we each day are putting Jesus first. It's so important that we're reading his word. Because it's only when you know the truth 
that you can spot the counterfeit um, in the banking system when people are being trained to spot counterfeit notes. The way they're trained is not by being shown lots of counterfeit notes and saying, well, this is a one counterfeit, this is a counterfeit. They're trained by studying the genuine article. That's what they focus on. They focus all their time. They're studying a genuine um, pound note or five pound note or whatever note it is. That, that's what they're studying because when you know the genuine thing, you spot the counterfeit immediately. And so for us, we need to be studying the genuine saviour of the world, the genuine superhero, the genuine word of God, the truth that God has revealed. Because when we know that, we'll spot the counterfeit a mile off. Study the counterfeit. When you hear of wars and revolutions, don't be frightened. It's, um, I was just thinking on you know, Friday, um, you know, the, the previous Prime Minister, Prime Minister President of, of Japan, Shinzo Abe, you know, shot. We knew about that within five minutes. Within five minutes, it had gone around the world. 2,000 years ago, you would just, you know, something would happen in a nation. You wouldn't hear about it for weeks. And then some traveller would come through your town and say, oh, I've come from this town and there was a rumour in that town that a, a, an uprising has happened in this nation. And then you'd start, you know, you'd start to worry. You'd come, oh, well, I wonder. And it would be like Chinese whispers. It would get exaggerated along the way. And then by the time it gets to you. And so inevitably you would start to think, oh, wow, are they going to be on our doorstep next? You would be frightened. And Jesus says, well, don't be frightened. Uh, these things, as I said before, they've been happening since the year dot. Uh, they've been happening throughout history. They've always been going on. We just, we hear about them now immediately. And when you watch the news, it's so easy to be frightened by the things that are going on. I've, I have to, I've kind of keep in touch with the news, but I've, I watch the news less than I used to. Because it's so, because you're just fed this constant stream of things that are going wrong. And, what, and things we should be worried about and things we should be frightened about. And the way they're presented in the mainstream kind of media is you should be really frightened about this. But actually, the Lord is the same yesterday, today and forever. And he said, don't be frightened. He said, these things must happen, but the end will not come right away. So we mustn't be frightened by these things. Jesus said they must happen, but the end will not come right away. Remember, one of the threads that's kind of weaving through this is this idea about the day of the Lord. That the, the present age will end and the age to come will start immediately. And one of the things that Jesus teaches us is, no, there's, a, there's an overlap. The kingdom of God has come with Jesus. But the kingdom of God won't be finally and fully realised until he returns. And so we live in this kind of overlap of the two ages, uh, which is why we live uh, in an age of, of miracle and mystery. We pray for people to be healed and some are healed instantly and immediately. And we pray for others to be healed, and they're not. And we wonder why. It's, it's miracle and mystery. The kingdom of God is breaking in. And we should expect to see the signs of God's kingdom breaking in. But we won't see it fully and completely until Jesus returns. We must wait. But as we wait, we are encouraged by the signs of God's kingdom that we see. We see people healed and delivered. We see storms stilled. We do see people raised from the dead. God's kingdom is breaking in, but it will remain a mess until Jesus returns. Then he said to them, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. Well, we just 
Watch the, you know, watch the news for five minutes. It's happening. It's not getting any better. Sometimes people say, uh, well, the world will be a much more peaceful place without religion. Because religion always starts wars. Well, it's rubbish. <laughs> Human beings start wars. And occasionally they use religion as the reason. But if there was no religion in the world, it would be no better. Because our hearts are corrupt and selfish. Uh, The Bible says the heart is corrupt and is beyond cure. So if there was no religion, we would still fight each other. There would still be wars. Uh, I remember, um, I'm sure I've said this before, and I wish I could find a source of it, but I remember reading some years ago a, a study into the causes of 21 major conflicts in the 20th century. Uh, including you know, both world wars and there's tw- there 21 major conflicts and in 18 of them, uh, religion was not a causal factor. There were other things that went on. We're just greedy and selfish and we want what other people have and we want other people's territory. It's got nothing to do with religion. It's our selfish hearts. Nation rise, will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. That's what happens in a selfish world. There'll be great earthquakes, famines, pestilences in various places, fearful events and great signs from heaven. We are, we're, you know, we're living in an age. You know, we're in another blooming heat wave. You know, when I was a kid, you know, for years and years, oh, I remember the summer of 76. I remember we had standpipes in the street and uh, we had to fill our buckets with water. Now we don't talk about 76. We, we talk about, oh, you know, 20 and... 21 and 22 and you know it's happening more and you know there's a drought in northern Italy while half of Australia is underwater and you know the the natural world is subject to decay again we shouldn't be surprised by these things Paul says in Romans chapter 8 the creation was subjected to frustration not by its own choice but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation will one day be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. You know, these things are, are happening, but we shouldn't be frightened by them. These are the birth pangs. And, uh, uh, you know, as we've just discovered in our family, you know, birth pangs can be particularly painful. But you kind of, you get over them. Well, I, I'm saying this as a man, but uh, I'm you do get over them quite quickly because of the joy you know, the joy of the baby, you know, at home at the moment, you know, Esther is recovering from a, you know, traumatic birth. But we have this little baby, Alfie, who we've just all fallen in love with. And so the, you know, the trauma of, you know, the birth itself is, is quickly being forgotten. And, and even when, you know, when Esther was in labour, she knew that her pain was not pointless, that at the end of it, she'd have this new life. And so the birth pains that we live with in the world, the, you know, the collapse of governments and the wars that we see and the, you know, the decay in creation, uh, we're not frightened by it because they're birth pains. And we know it's not pointless pain. It's pain that will produce a new birth. And that's what we keep our eyes fixed on. So we're not frightened by these things. Jesus said it's going to happen. Kind of get used to it. But... Put your trust in me. Before of this, they will lay hands on you and persecute you. They will deliver you to synagogues and prisons and you will be brought before kings and governors and all on account of my name. When things go badly, someone gets the blame. And often in societies, a particular people group 
will get the blame. So often throughout history, it's been God's chosen people, the Jews, who have been blamed for what has happened in society. Uh, when, uh, uh, you know, in, in uh, you know, 2,000 years ago, when things were wrong, it was the Jews that were blamed. When Rome was sacked in AD... Whenever it was. <laughs> Rome was sacked in AD something or other. It, the Christians were blamed. And that's why Augustine of Hippo, who was a great, it must have been about the 4th century, because Augustine of Hippo, who was a famous uh, bishop in the, um, not of Hippopotamuses, it was a place in northern Africa. Uh, Augustine of Hippo, who, uh, he wrote a, a, a book called The City of God. And it was written as an, as, a, as an apology or an explanation after Rome was sacked and destroyed by the pagans and the Christians were blamed. And so Hippo wrote this book to say, no, it's not our fault. But that's what happens. People groups are blamed and Christians are blamed. Through Covid in India, Christians were blamed because they weren't worshipping the gods that they should have been worshipping. Uh, persecution of Christians in some societies increased during COVID because Christians were blamed for worshipping the wrong God. That's what happens. We get picked on. Has always been the case, is the case now and will increasingly become the case and is increasingly becoming the case even in our nation and in our society. We've talked about this so many times that opposition to the gospel, you know, is, it's on the increase. And Jesus says, you know, don't worry about it. He said, this will result in your being witnesses to them. Uh, Paul writes in um, Philippians, he's writing in prison and he's being criticised for the fact that he's, being in, he's in prison. Because some people are saying, well, if your gospel was so wonderful, if your Jesus was so good, what are you doing in prison? If he's your saviour, why hasn't he saved you? And so Jesus, uh, uh, Paul is writing from Philippians uh, Uh, partly to kind of explain that actually no it's a good thing that he's in prison he says this verse 12 of chapter 1 I want you to know brothers and sisters that what's happened to me has really served to advance the gospel as a result it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I'm in chains for Christ because of my chains most of the brothers in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously and fearlessly When the church is persecuted, the church grows. That's the story of the church. So Jesus says, he says, don't worry about it. Verse 14, make up your mind not to worry beforehand how you will descend yourselves. For I will give you words and wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. Uh, You know, sometimes we, we wonder how do, how would we cope? How would we cope? If we were suffering the kind of persecution that we read about, uh, you know, our brothers and sisters around the world. I've, you know, I've used the um, Release International Prayer Diary every day and every morning I read of some heartbreaking situation. I was um, just praying yesterday for a dear lady in, uh, in India who her husband was, I think he was killed and her three daughters were kidnapped 10 years ago. So for 10 years, she has no idea where her daughters are, if they're still alive, what's happened to them. She's lost her husband and yet she's still involved in leading her, leading a church and telling other people about Jesus. And you kind of think, how on earth, how would I cope in that situation? Well, 
Jesus says, don't worry beforehand how you will defend yourselves. Paul had discovered that God's grace was sufficient for him in every situation. Jesus says, I will give you words and wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. We, we so need God's wisdom in these days. It's so easy to look at what's going on in the news and to just, just apply our human wisdom to think, oh, what we need to do about this circumstance. Actually, we need to be seeking Jesus's wisdom as we pray about these things. How should we be praying? How should we be responding? God is everything that we need. He says, you'll be betrayed even by parents, brothers, relatives and friends. Uh, they will put some of you to death. All people will hate you because of me. Not a hair on your head will perish. This is, I was reading this and thinking, huh? Because he kind of says, um, that they will put some of you to death, but not a hair on your head will perish. I'm like, how do you square that circle? <laughs> he says, he says we're going to be, some of you are going to be killed because you trust me, but not a hair on your head will perish. Like, how does that work? We're speaking of the resurrection. Uh, if you've read the, um, uh, the book of Job in the Old Testament, uh, I read some time ago uh, 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 just a, a commentary on the book of Job. And you'll know the story of Job, that he, he basically, he has everything. You know, he's rich, he's prosperous, he's, he's got Crops and herds and flocks and everything, a wonderful family. And then he loses the lot. He loses everything. And then, you know, you have the whole, you know, Job's comforters who are not very comforting and da 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 goes the whole thing. And at the end of the story, at the end of the story, God restores to Job double of everything that he lost. And when you read the list, it's double of everything that he lost. All his, his flocks, he gets double. Herds, he gets double. Crops, he gets double. The one thing he doesn't get double of at the end are children. He gets the same number of children at the end that he had at the beginning. Why, doesn't, why does God double everything apart from his number of children? Well, it's because he didn't lose them. Because he didn't lose them because of the resurrection, because of what Jesus was going to do, this timeless event of Jesus uh, defeating death, Job's children are not dead. They're with the Lord. And he's going to see them again. And that's why he doesn't get double. He gets the same number because they're safe. The ones that he lost, they're safe with the Lord. And that's why Jesus says to us, he says, you know, some of you will die for your faith. Probably won't be any of us in this room, but today some of our brothers and sisters will die because they love the Lord Jesus. But not a hair on their head will perish. Because they go to be with the Lord. And our resurrection is a physical resurrection. Some of us are going to get more hair than we have at the moment. Because we start losing hair and we're going to get it all back. And uh, that's the thing. We may suffer. We know all of this. We may suffer. This, we may be costly in this life. But this is... The promise of Jesus. We may suffer the, you know, our families being divided. So I have a, a dear friend who has three sons, and two of his sons are walking with the Lord, and one of his sons has utterly rejected his Christian faith and rejected everything about Christianity and has rejected his parents. And it is deeply, deeply painful. But that's, you know, the gospel causes this division it causes us to choose it causes conflict it's painful 
All people will hate you because of me, Jesus says. But not a hair on your head will perish. That's the, you know, that's the glory of the gospel. That's the glory of the resurrection. And so he says, and we're going to end here this morning, and we'll, we'll, we'll do the rest next week. By standing firm, you will gain life. That's his promise. By standing firm, you will gain life. So the challenge for us today and the, the challenge for us in the, the days in which we're living, which are days of you know, huge turmoil in our world, huge uncertainty. Governments are you know, collapsing. Churches are collapsing. So many institutional churches are collapsing around us. So much around us is in free fall. Jesus says, stand firm and you will gain life. And that's the challenge for us to put... Jesus first in our lives, to be a church that is so focused on the genuine article that we spot the counterfeits a mile off and we don't entertain them. A church that is so focused on the word of God that we we will not compromise on the truth of what God has shown us. The pressure to compromise is enormous in our world. But the truth is the truth is the truth and it's our responsibility in love to proclaim the truth of God's word. Whatever that may mean for us, whatever consequences that may mean, because that's what Jesus asks us to do. Stand firm and you'll gain life, eternal life. That's the good news. So let's not be frightened when we watch the news. Let's not worry about what we may need to do in the future. Uh, We have a God who's the same yesterday, today and forever. God whose grace is sufficient for us, a God who will show us the way if we stand firm. So let's just take a moment to pray as we begin to draw to a close this morning. And uh, just in these moments, uh, Lord Jesus, uh, we need your help in these days and we thank you that you're with us to help us. We thank you that nothing that's going on in our world at the moment has taken you by surprise. All of it is happening under your sovereign hand. The things that we don't understand, you are allowing because you're a sovereign God. And as we were reminded this morning, we see through a glass darkly. And so, Lord Jesus, this morning we want to say we will stand on the truth of who you have revealed yourself to be. We choose to stand on the truth of your revealed word. We choose to look to you as the people of God for your wisdom in these days. That as things fall apart around us, uh, we would be a church that stands firm and strong and tall and hopeful and a place of salvation. And we pray that there will be many, many, many other churches in our nation who stand firm in these days. And who are those beacons of life in a society that so desperately needs hope. Lord, you're all that we need. May we know that and stand on that truth in the days to come. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.